Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 31st, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding major appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. Yesterday, with some palpable reluctance, the California Supreme Court shut the courthouse door on a class of business owner plaintiffs seeking lost revenue damages that resulted from the 2015 natural gas leak near Porter Ranch. The leak at a SoCal gas facility in Aliso Canyon was massive and forced residents near the facility to relocate for an extended period of time. This, the class of business owner plaintiffs claim, inflicted significant economic harm upon them as many of their patrons had been displaced, seeking escape from the ever-present cloud of methane. But, however, many jurisdictions are reluctant to allow tort actions where the only sought damages are financial. Rather, courts often require that a plaintiff have suffered some personal injury or property damage in order to pursue a claim. In those instances where a plaintiff has suffered physical or property harm, even if it's fairly slight, other related economic harms like lost paychecks are often recoverable. But where a plaintiff only claims economic harm, even significant, very provable harm, they're often out of luck. And Such was the case Thursday, when the high court joined most other jurisdictions to reaffirm that plaintiffs claiming purely financial injury generally may not pursue negligence actions against tort feasors. The court was manifestly unenthusiastic about this conclusion, describing the rule as the least worst rule out there, but the court determined it must apply the rule here in order to avoid harder problems of line drawing and potential over-liability were the plaintiffs here allowed to proceed. In the very interconnected economy, Justice Cuellar wrote for the unanimous court, economic harms can ripple outward from an event like the Aliso Canyon League to a vast number of potential plaintiffs. So he and the court concluded drawing a bright line rule at purely economic loss was the better option. And if you followed this case, you may be a bit surprised by its outcome and its unanimity. At argument, several of the justices lamented the harshness and arbitrariness of the rule the court ended up endorsing yesterday. Justice Liu stressed that a very clear line connected SoCal Gas's alleged negligence and the lost revenue harms here, and the chief justice worried the utility wouldn't be sufficiently deterred from preventing future accidents without the threat of this sort of tort top of liability for property damage and personal injury caused. In the end, though, the court together acquiesced to that least worst rule. And today, to talk about it, we'll have on two attorneys who worked on the case, one as an amicus and one as the plaintiff's counsel. First, we'll hear from Yen Shang Seng of Horvitz and Levy, who filed an amicus brief on behalf of the State and National Chamber of Commerce, urging the court towards the result it ended up reaching yesterday. Then we'll hear from the attorney who argued for the plaintiffs, for the High Court, Leslie Bruckner, from Public Justice in Oakland. For that, one quick reminder that CLE credit is available to listeners of this podcast and is very simple to claim. Just go to our website, dailyjournal.com, and find the podcast library, where you see this episode, there should be a link to a short true-false test. Once you take that and tender the very competitive rate, one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. Okay, with no further preamble, then let me welcome onto the podcast, Yen Sheng Seng, is an appellate associate with Horowitz and Levy here in Southern California. He wrote an amicus in support of SoCal Gas here. Yen, welcome onto the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so a lot of ways to, to start talking about this opinion. One I thought that might be interesting is just about the, the tone of it. It seemed to me that the court really was almost resistant or reluctant in reaching the conclusion that it just sort of felt it had to. Cuellar and you know the court writes in a unanimous opinion that they're not saying this is a great rule, the economic loss rule, but it's just the least bad one. Uh, do you have any thoughts on sort of the, the nature of, of the tone of this opinion? I would agree with you on the tone. Uh, I think the problem is this is 
Cuellar, I guess, recognizes in the opinion that the the plaintiffs likely have suffered losses, uh, just economic losses. So in terms of tort law, he's you know trying to see where a line can be drawn, and his opinion seems to suggest that he doesn't really like the line that's being drawn in terms of the economic loss doctrine, but it is a good, you know, or at least the least bad, according to him, the bright line rule that can be drawn to limitless liability while still, you know, allowing some plaintiffs to recover in, in you know, other instances. Sure. So let's talk about the line that that is being drawn. How clear is it? So is, is the rule now that the California Supreme Court has endorsed that if you are harmed by a tort, say a, a, a large industrial accident that ends up making it so you don't have any business at your establishment for a few weeks or several months, um, you, know, you feel that harm, you feel um, the loss of revenue. But if you don't have any attendant physical harm or property damage, um, your harm is only financial, you don't have a tort? Is that the, the rule? Uh, generally speaking, yeah, that's, that's, that is the rule that the, this opinion establishes. Of course, there is the special relationship exception under the Berkanja test that uh, the court also recognized here. So if, if you can show a special relationship with the defendant under that test, then you can still potentially have a case despite the economic loss doctrine. But the economic loss doctrine as applied here does say that if you are a plaintiff that is in a tort negligence action and all you've suffered is purely economic losses, then the defendant generally will have no duty to to you as a matter of law. Sure. And that's important there. So, yeah, as a you know, matter of law, we're talking about sort of that threshold step of the tort analysis, whether there's a, a duty owed by the, the tort feeser to these potential plaintiffs that only suffer financial harm. And as you said, the and as the court said, really the main factor recommending a, a line like this that might be uh, potentially seem harsh to exclude folks that have suffered real harm is the fact that you have a hard time drawing any line elsewhere. So tell me, you know, why is it so hard to to draw a line that, that's not here? Why why is the economic loss rule just the one that courts have decided to settle on? Why couldn't you just have, okay, a, a line that includes folks like this that live nearby an industrial accident that are pretty directly harmed, it seems like, and so you have the line there. You know, why is the slope so slippery or you know, why is the potential for limitless liability so large in the view of the court and, and all the other courts that have adopted this rule? Well, I think if you go back to the basics, if you look at the, the Billy case and the example that was discussed there, you have you know, the, the automobile accident that creates a backup and you know, everyone that's waiting hours for that accident to resolve probably suffers some sort of economic loss. Their employers probably suffer some sort of loss from the loss of their employees' um, productivity. And so, you know, the, the question is kind of how do you figure out where to draw the line? And in, in the context of this case, um, the Supreme Court goes through two specific analysis that it did, which is the space and time issues. So the space issue um, in this case is that the plaintiffs here are a putative class of businesses within a five-mile radius of of the uh, gas facility. So how do you come up with you know five-mile radius? And 
Why is a business that's right outside five miles not included within this class? Why is a business that you know is maybe ten miles away, or in, you know, is a restaurant delivery service that services this area and lost a significant chunk of business? Why is that not included? So there's the that space problem, and then there's the time problem of what kind of damages are you seeking? Um, are you seeking damages only for you know, the the loss of business during the time that the residents were evacuated or during the time of the disaster? Or are you also seeking future damages? Because I believe they've alleged that, you know, business, the loss of business is still basically ongoing and things will never go back to exactly the way they were. So, So those two, I think, are specific to this case. But you can imagine a lot of other situations where, different facts might you know, cause different analyses of the rippling effects and limitless liability that might come up if you allowed people that suffered purely economic losses to bring lawsuits. And not just even that, but you know the, the fact that you would allow the lawsuits to get past a demur stage, which is where it ended here, I think you know, litigation is a cost. I mean, it's, it's not just whether you ultimately have to be found liable to to the plaintiffs and you know, have a judgment entered against you. Yeah, I mean, those are sort of temporal and and spatial problems or line drawing problems, as you say, were were um, you know dealt with at some length by the court. Also, the opinion references how interconnected the modern economy is, which also seems, in its view, to recommend a you know against allowing recovery here. Because I, I take it the idea being that. If you rule that okay, these folks have a viable tort claim for lost business revenue, you know their businesses are probably connected with businesses outside of that neighborhood, maybe suppliers in other areas who maybe suffered as well, and maybe employees of of those suppliers and things like that. So it it does seem like the interconnectedness and the potential reach just throughout the economy also weighed into this opinion. Would would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one other thing that I couldn't totally get a, a handle on in, in researching this case and, and, and following it is, you know, to what extent the economic loss rule that you've described has been sort of the, the law or the rule in California. The opinion reads as it being sort of established now clearly for maybe the first time or at least uh, re-clarified. But an argument, you know, Kathleen Sullivan representing the uh, utility seems to suggest the court has always followed this rule, that it's, it's real clear. Leslie Bruckner, representing the plaintiffs, suggested you know, existing law on the books would, would allow for recovery like this. I guess um, you know, in, in your researching and writing in the amicus, how you know, f- um, squarely had the court addressed the economic loss rule question previously? Is this a sort of new uh, articulation of the rule? So, no, I don't think it's completely new. I, I, a couple of points, though. I, I think the economic loss doctrine has, you know, that, that phrase is a little confusing and has been applied in a bunch of different contexts. So that's, that's probably where some of the confusion comes up. And one of the things that I noticed in the Supreme Court's opinion is that it, I, I don't think I saw the phrase economic loss doctrine or economic loss rule yeah. used in the opinion other than as part of a quotation. Um, it the, the court seems to use you know, consistently the phrase basically lawsuits for purely economic losses. I, I think that was 
partly because I wanted to clear up that this rule is, you know, this rule rather than some other formulation of the economic loss doctrine or economic loss rule that might apply in some other, some of the other kinds of situations where it's come up. But I do think this particular rule, which is the economic loss doctrine applied in a negligence action for purely uh, economic losses, has been applied fairly consistently in California law, um, starting, I believe, with the Fifield case in 1960. And since then, it's been applied over and over, um, or at least discussed favorably over and over in you know, cases like Billy and Colomane and I think uh, a couple of other more recent cases. So I, I think it's been established, and I think uh, the this line of cases has also been you know applied with the special relationship exception since Bikanja, and uh, I believe it was the 50s, and then that test was reiter- reiterated later in the 70s. So I, I think the current test, which you know, before this case, the, the test was essentially that the economic loss doctrine applied with this special relationship exception. And I, I think this opinion you know, sort of clarifies that it applies, um, but it's not established, establishing a new rule. Can we just spin out real quickly that special relationship exemption and why it doesn't apply here? So I understand it was discussed at an argument. I think Kathleen Sullivan said, you know, here here's an instance where there is sort of some connection between the the tortfeasor and and the plaintiff. Say you are a potential will beneficiary and a notary does something that ends up making the will you will benefit from not be effective. Your harm is only economic, but there you could potentially sue in tort. So is that a good example of a special relationship? And here, so the idea is, even though these folks live very close to the plant, you know, foreseeably be affected by something like this, there's no real relationship other than that proximity. So effectively for, you know, tort law, they're strangers. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I, I would defer to Kathleen as far as the application of the special relationship test to this case. What I would say generally, though, is that I think the special relationship test most often will come up in instances involving, for example, third-party beneficiaries to a contract. That's like the most clear you know, way you can have a special relationship with a defendant where you would otherwise be you know, strangers. I wanted to just bring up a, a couple of things that were also raised an argument that seemed to suggest the court was, was sort of hoping or, or at least entertaining the idea of figuring out a way to craft a remedy for, for these plaintiffs that might um, be workable in tort law generally. I mean, both Justices Cuellar and, and Groban referenced, I think, at least a couple of times that this rule is both harsh and also seems pretty arbitrary. So Justice Groban referenced that even if you have a very slight bit of property damage, like if one of these businesses had a bed of flowers out front and those flowers died, then their tort claim could go forward. But since, you know, they, maybe they didn't have that, all they had was financial harm, they're out of luck. I mean, that does, it does seem pretty arbitrary that in one case, flowers are dead. And so you get the entirety of your lost revenue. And in the other case, if you don't have flowers and you're out of Do you have any thoughts on, I guess, just the, that the arbitrariness question? Well, I think this goes back to the line drawing problem, right? And it, and I think they 
they both ultimately recognized in this opinion that any line drawn would be somewhat arbitrary, and you know some plaintiffs will be able to recover and others won't. And I think they're they've gone through this analysis and they they, they concluded basically that this the current line um, drawn is the the best one that they can come up with, and you know I, I don't think we disagree with that. Justice Kruger seemed to be figuring out a potential way she could draw a line that would encompass, you know, very sort of discrete, identifiable, and and small groups of plaintiffs. She referenced, you know, how exceptions have been made in in other natural disaster contexts like oil spills, where um, perhaps fishermen are only affected economically by you know, the death of large amounts of marine life, but have been able to recover. So it sort of seemed like maybe the court was thinking about crafting that, you know, an analogous rule here for maybe businesses nearby utilities. But I take it they came to the conclusion that would also be an unworkable line. Yeah, I think that's that's also reflected in the opinion. I think it goes right back to the line drawing problem again. I think they discussed the admiralty cases with um, the, the fishermen, and I think they all, they've also discussed this um, the New Jersey People Express test, which I think the phrase they used is particular foreseeability, which is something that I think what you're referring to you know, a particular class of plaintiffs that might be particularly foreseeable in terms of the the harm. And ultimately, I think courts that, most courts that have addressed that kind of test have basically said that it's unworkable. And I think People Express was decided in the 80s and several law review articles have talked about it as a lonely outpost or um, soundly rejected by, you know, most other courts. And uh, I think that's for good reason, because it's, you know, once you get into that rabbit hole, you, the line drawing problem becomes you know, even more difficult. Like, you know, there, there are so many different lines you can start drawing, and then they're all going to be arbitrary. I'm not sure how closely you, you followed the oral argument, but I'm curious if, if you were surprised at all at the unanimous result here after that argument. So I've referenced a few justices seeming pretty skeptical about the harshness and arbitrariness of this line. Also, the chief and I think Justice Corrigan, too, seemed, you know, palpably appalled at the the actions of the defendant. It seemed like to to really think a lot more could have been done to prevent this accident. I mean, obviously, the, the harm they referenced was pretty extreme and just in terms of, you know, the emitted methane and, and the effect to the neighborhood. To an extent, were you surprised to see a unanimous ruling in favor of the, the utility? Not particularly. I did follow the argument, and uh, I did notice that several of them were very concerned, I suppose, with the allegations that, of what happened here and also you know, the line drawing problem again and things like that. But I think the opinion itself, with the tone that it adopts in terms of the reluctance to you know, set to, to clarify the rule the way it is, might have you know, satisfied uh, their, some of their concerns, at least. And yeah, I, I think the Supreme Court does try to um, come to a consensus. You know, that I, I don't think they're as uh, dissent happy as the United States Supreme Court would be. Mm-hmm. Just a, a couple of last ones. There, I'm curious where this leaves one of the other sort of touchstone tort liability or um, duty of care cases. The, the the Rowland case was talked about a lot at oral argument as you know, sort of the foundational 
precedent for figuring out when defendants owe a duty of care to tort plaintiffs. And Bruckner arguing for the plaintiffs suggested, you know, here it recommends a duty of care for because several of the factors point that way, the foreseeability of the harm, sort of the moral culpability associated with the accident, a pretty clear connection between the accident and the harm. And it seemed like some justices might be keen to go along with that, but of course they didn't. So, you know, is are we to, to read from that that Rowland isn't, you know, it's sort of not essentially related to a, a tort like this where we're talking about purely economic harms and you only reference it in more traditional ones where there are personal injury or property damage? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there's two ways. There's basically two roads you go down depending on the kind of harm that was suffered and the kind of uh, tort action that this is. So, in the general, you know, usual tort case where there is personal injury or property damage, you go down the route of um, Civil Code 1714 and Rowland, and you look at those factors. You start with the presumption that there is a duty, and then you go through those factors to see where whether there should be an exception to that duty. In this kind of case, where we here, where we have the negligence action for purely economic losses, you don't start with 1714. You don't start with Rowland. You start with the presumption that there is no duty, um, and then you go through the Bikanja and JR factors to see whether an ex- a special relationship exists such that a duty should be found. So this case doesn't really affect Roland because it it, it shouldn't have applied in the first place. Um, And it still applies where in all the other contexts where it does. Okay. Uh, So then towards the end of the opinion, the the court says, you know, clearly we recognize there are some harms. Clearly there was some, some concrete harms felt here, but we are not the plaintiffs only resort, the legislature could step in here and sort of create a method by which folks harmed in this way can recover. Uh, tell me a bit more about the potential avenues the legislature might have to create some sort of remedy here. I also understand there was an analogous situation in the home building context where a statute was created in a where there was potentially sort of a liability gap like this previously. Do I have that right? Yeah, so previously um, there was also the economic loss doctrine as applied in the construction defect arena. And the legislature essentially enacted, I believe it's called the Right to Repair Act, which sets sets out a, an entire statutory scheme for you know, remedying these problems and litigation and all of that stuff. So I, I would assume they, if they wanted to, um, they could do something somewhat similar for cases um, like the one here. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, the economic loss rule clarified and and made the the law of California by the Supreme Court. Yen Cheng saying thanks very much for being on the podcast. Appellate associate with Horvitz and Levy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, before welcoming on our next guest, I'd just like to. Offer one more reminder about the CLE credit that is available to listeners of the podcast. It does help us continue to make this show available outside of our usual paywall. So hope you go and find your one hour of credit to which you are entitled. Just go to dailyjournal.com, find this show, click a link to a short true false test, and one hour of credit can be yours. Okay, Leslie Bruckner is a senior attorney with public justice in Oakland. She argued the SoCal gas case on behalf of this class of business owner plaintiffs. 
Now, you'll hear my conversation with her in just one minute, but I should note the conversation was recorded a couple of days before the ruling came down, so bear that in mind. But that notwithstanding, we do explore the various issues and arguments involved here and why Ms. Parkton believes that these plaintiffs should not have been shut out. So I think the conversation is still an interesting one that explores the pitfalls of a strict economic loss rule like the one the court endorsed on Thursday. Okay, with that, here's my conversation with Leslie Bruckner. Happy to welcome now Leslie Bruckner, a senior attorney with public justice in Oakland who argued this case on behalf of the plaintiffs. Leslie, welcome onto the show. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, so um, as is pretty much always the case when a tort case gets up to this level of the appellate courts, the question the court is, is grappling with is not you know, whether the defendant here, SoCal Gas, is in fact liable, but the the earlier on the antecedent threshold question of you know, whether in cases like this, a defendant like SoCal Gas can be liable, the duty of care question. That's a, a tricky distinction, the question of liability and the question of duty. And, you know, the difference between those two questions seems to blend um, or become fuzzy because similar factors weigh into both it, factors like foreseeability and, you know, direct causation, things like that seem to kind of go to both. But help me, you remind me exactly what the difference is between duty and liability as, uh, as you see it. Sure. Duty is really about whether or not the plaintiff has the right even to get in the courthouse door. So the question of whether or not Southern California Gas has a duty of care to the plaintiffs here, if the court answers that affirmatively, then we'll be able to go to court and make our case that Southern California Gas was negligent and should be held liable. If the court holds on the contrary that Southern California Gas has no duty of care to our clients, then we won't even get to argue our case to the court or to a jury. It won't matter how negligent Southern California Gas was. It won't matter how terrible its misconduct may have been. We just won't be able to try our case to a jury or present it to a court at all. Okay, and we'll get in, as, as we go along, we'll talk a bit more about uh, why the duty of care question is a bit different than the, the liability question. Um, but let's get a bit more into the uh, specifics of the legal question here. And uh, namely, the economic loss rule is, is central in this case. So the, the plaintiffs that you're representing uh, claim only that they were harmed economically. They lost uh, money based on the, the methane leak happened at the SoCal Gas facility. There are, I believe, seven businesses in the vicinity that, of course, once folks you know, were relocated out of the affected radius, lost you know, quite a bit of, of business. So the other side here, SoCal Gas is arguing that there's an economic loss rule in California and nationwide whereby if plaintiffs are only harmed economically, they um, are owed no duty, and so obviously can't recover from defendants that so harm them. Tell me a bit more about uh, the economic loss rule as you see it and and why you think it doesn't preclude your plaintiffs here. Yes. um, Just to clarify one factual thing at the outset, the seven businesses that you referenced are the, the named class representatives in the case, but they represent a class of over 400 small businesses that were injured 
um, and suffered economic losses as a result of this catastrophic um, gas well leak. That's just a, a factual thing to keep in mind. So, so the seven businesses are the representatives, but there's a much larger class that was injured as a result of this six-month um, evacuation of this area. Now, as to the economic loss rule, what Southern California Gas is arguing is that because our clients and the class they represent merely suffered so-called economic losses from this disaster, that they can't recover at all, that they can't even get in the courthouse door, and in fact that you you don't even get to analyze or whether they have a duty. There's actually two separate legal questions here. One is whether the economic loss rule standing alone bars our clients from even seeking recovery. And then the second question, once you get past the economic loss rule question, is whether there's a duty of care under California law. So those are distinct. Now, as to the economic loss rule, Southern California Gas argues that where somebody is injured by another entity's negligence, that if the only damages they suffer are purely economic and do not, and they don't have any associated property damage or personal injury, they just can't recover at all. And our argument to the California Supreme Court is that that argument that economic losses un tethered to property damage or personal injuries are simply not recoverable at all in a negligence action between strangers is actually contrary to what the California Supreme Court has already held in its cases applying the economic loss rule. And it's also a terrible rule from a public policy perspective. And on the first point, our argument about the California Supreme Court's prior rulings is that the economic loss rule has only been applied by the California Supreme Court to bar the recovery of economic damages in cases where there's some kind of an underlying transaction or contractual relationship between the parties. So in a case, for example, where there's a, a warranty that pertains to a defective product that harms someone, the California Supreme Court has held that if you're harmed by a defective product, you can't recover any more than if you have economic losses as a result of injury caused by a defective product, you can't recover any more than the underlying warranty. And the theory there is that we want to respect the party's ability to make private arrangements about what their risks are. But the California Supreme Court has never held that the economic loss rule applies in the stranger context, where there's no underlying warranty or contract between the parties to the lawsuit, and in fact, where the parties are strangers. And that's what this case is all about. The parties here are strangers. There's no relationship between the businesses that were harmed by Southern California Gas and Southern California Gas itself. There was no opportunity for our clients to come to some kind of a contractual arrangement with Southern California Gas about how its damages would be covered, how our clients' damages would be covered if they were ever injured. And so we say the economic loss rule just doesn't apply at all. And so I'll say, Brian, that's a very, very long answer. I could go back and try that one again no, if no. you want to give me a shot that, at it. That was great. Oh, I mean, you, you certainly can, but I think that I think that was excellent. Um, okay. It definitely covered all the bases. And we can get, you know, so you... you mentioned aside from sort of the the, the 
stranger versus um, sort of transactional relationship context. Aside from that, the just the the rule is is bad policy that uh, having only economic harms, being harmed only financially, means you can't um, sue a defendant that has caused that harm. You, Justice Quayer, I think, picked up on one problematic dynamic in a sort of policy language saying that rules seem pretty arbitrary. I think he said, you know, you take one of these businesses, if they just had a flower bed out front of their business, a bunch of petunias, and they were killed by the methane leak, then there would be some property damage. And so ergo, they could sue for the attendant economic loss they suffered. But, you know, lacking something like that, a a small bit of property damage, they're out of luck, you're saying. And then in the alternative, you say a resident did have that flower bed, their flowers die. Now they, you know, can access all the economic damages they may have suffered. Um, Talk a bit about, I guess, that arbitrariness with the, the economic loss rule and your take on it. Sure. So it was actually Justice Groban that asked the Petunia question, although um, Justice Quaylar also asked a question about the arbitrariness of this uh, economic loss rule. And both of their questions get to the heart of why an economic loss rule makes no sense in this case. What Southern California Gas is arguing, in essence, is that Somebody who has a very minor personal injury or property damage, for example, let's say somebody has one nosebleed or somebody has a bed of petunias that was harmed. Under Southern California Gas's version of the economic loss rule, those people can recover in a lawsuit against Southern California Gas. But somebody whose entire business was destroyed as a result of Southern California Gas's negligence can't recover a penny. And our argument to the court was that distinction doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense to categorically eliminate standalone economic loss claims when you consider that that kind of injury can be far worse than a property damage claim or a personal injury claim arising out of the same conduct. So both Justice Quaylar and Justice Groban, with his Petunia example, clearly understood that. The whole Petunia example was about, are you telling me that somebody who loses a bed of Petunias can't recover, but somebody whose entire business was destroyed can? And Kathleen Sullivan, who argued for Southern California Gas, had to basically say, yes, that is our position. And she said, we understand that it's unfair, but that's the law. You have to apply the law as written. And our response is, no, actually, not only is that rule unfair, a rule that basically says that a serious economic loss um, has no, somebody who suffers a serious economic loss can't recover a penny from Southern California gas, but the petunia owner can. We're saying not only is that an inherently unfair and harsh rule, but it's also not the rule that the California Supreme Court has announced in prior cases. Yeah, Ms. Sullivan also referenced that in a lot of legal contexts where lines are drawn, it's not the easiest thing to do, and arguments can always sort of be made that, okay, this is a, not the, the, the best place to draw a line. And, and yeah, you know, of course, lines are often drawn. They're, they're, they're necessary, they're, uh, or at least they're 
useful. They prevent you know certain things like here, as SoCal Gas is arguing, you have to have a line because otherwise you could have a situation where there's limitless liability. So we have these businesses suing based on a loss of business. Does that mean that we also have plaintiffs that, say, supply these businesses with their products or if you have employees for those supplier businesses that might lose a job based on, you know, the lost business near Porter Ranch, do they have claims against SoCal Gas and, you know, on and on is the argument. So I guess why, what's wrong with drawing the line here? And if you say it shouldn't be here, how do you articulate where instead it should be drawn? So the fallacy in Southern California Gas's argument about arbitrariness is that First of all, the plaintiffs in this case are defined by reference to a five-mile zone that was actually created by the County of Los Angeles. The County of Los Angeles ordered Southern California Gas to pay for the relocation of anyone who lived within the five-mile zone. And as a result of that order from the county, 15,000 local area residents relocated for six months. When we defined this class, we defined it as including only the businesses within the five-mile zone, because those are the businesses that are likely to have suffered the most amount of economic loss. And the line that we drew wasn't arbitrary. It was precisely the line that the county of Los Angeles itself defined based on its scientific estimate of where the most damage was done. So then there's the question. So our line is not arbitrary. It was the line adopted by the county. Southern California Gas tries to confuse things by saying, well, if you allow the businesses within the five mile boundary to recover, that's going to open the door to any and all entities, such as the employees of those businesses or the suppliers of those businesses, to also recover. And you're going to have a situation of unlimited liability. And our answer to that hypothetical is that the existing duty rules that the California Supreme Court applies when deciding whether or not there's a duty of care in any given case take care of those problems of potentially unlimited liability. And this brings us to the second question in the case. The first question is whether or not the economic loss rule bars our claims. And the answer to that question is no, for all the reasons we've just discussed. The economic loss rule only applies in the transactional setting. And then the question becomes, is there a general duty of care under the standard rules that the California Supreme Court applies to determine whether to recognize such a duty in a novel context where it's never been applied before. And to do that, the court applies a series of factors called the Roland factors in a, that were announced in a case called Roland versus Christian. And basically, the court, under that decision, starts with a presumption that anyone who has injured somebody else by their negligence has a duty of care. And then the court applies a series of factors to determine whether to carve out an exception to that duty of care, and those are the so-called Roland factors. And the Roland factors include things like, was the harm foreseeable to the negligent actor? Is there a close connection between the harm and the injury? Was the actor morally blameworthy? And our argument in this case about why 
the whole specter of runaway liability is that the Roland factors themselves stop that runaway liability from occurring. So to get back to the hypothetical of the suppliers of the businesses, our argument to the court is it's very unlikely that a court would allow the suppliers of businesses to recover from Southern California gas because those damages are not closely enough connected to Southern California Gas's conduct. And they're not foreseeable enough. And all sorts of other factors suggest that those people would not have a duty of care separate and apart from the economic loss rule. But even beyond that, if a court were to find that there was a duty of care that extended to these what I call downstream actors... Those people would probably never even get into court for another reason, which is that they have to show proximate causation. And proximate causation is something that a jury in a court looks at to see whether the injuries are closely enough connected to the negligent actor's conduct. So this is all a very long way of explaining that. The standard duty rules and the rules governing breach and proximate causation will themselves likely stop the specter of downstream liability from ever happening. And therefore, we say to the court, opening the courthouse door to our clients is not going to create unlimited liability like Southern California Gas is arguing. It's not going to create that unlimited liability because California law already takes care of stopping unlimited liability before it even begins. Okay, so I mean, some of the you know, floats in the the parade of of horribles that SoCal gas sites here. You know, if you have a looser duty of care rule, then utilities will face orders of magnitude more suits, and as a result, have a terrible, terribly hard time getting insured. Would go bankrupt quickly, or uh, have to jack up their rates to cover higher insurance. And so, in your view, even if the plaintiffs here are um, seen as owed a duty of care, we're not. We still have that those uh, sort of touchstone Rollin factors and, and other California case law that will be able to, to filter out the cases with somewhat less direct connections from um, action and, and harm. Exactly. You, you put it better than I did and, <laughs> and, and more succinctly. That's right. And, and the argument about insurance is always trotted out by defendants in any case where they're facing tort liability. Defendants routinely say to courts, if you hold us liable, it's going to cost us all this money. We're going to have to get all this extra insurance. And it's just not a factually accurate argument. Um, Southern California Gas did not put forward any evidence that this would strain its insurance limits. And in fact, Sempra Gas, which is Southern California Gas's parent company, has between 1.4 and I believe between 1.4 and 1.2 billion dollars of liability insurance. And in its 10K statement with the SEC, Southern, uh, Sempra, the, the parent company for Southern California Gas, actually recognized the possibility that a massive um, get methane gas explosion could cause it to cause widespread harm to the surrounding communities. And that's what that insurance coverage is for. And the idea that 
you shouldn't force Sempergas into, to dip into its insurance coverage. So small businesses like a pizza parlor and um, a daycare center should have to bear the uh, weight of that liability is just not a viable argument. And I think that the California Supreme Court will probably see through that. Mm-hmm. The other argument about insurance, I would just note, is that Southern California Gas argued in its briefs that our clients should have bought what they call business interruption insurance, that it's our clients' fault that they did not see fit to purchase a kind of insurance that would help protect them from these kinds of losses. But Southern California Gas's attorney actually conceded at oral argument that that kind of insurance is not available. So they made this argument in their brief about business and interruption insurance, but then uh, Ms. Sullivan turned around and admitted during oral argument that business interruption insurance would not even have been available to these plaintiffs. So basically, they're saying that even though Sempergas has $1.4 billion of insurance, and even though the businesses we represent could not have insured themselves against this loss, that we should still have to swallow all of our losses so that Southern California Gas can go about its business. And that is simply untenable from a public policy perspective. And so we are asking the California Supreme Court to recognize that. Okay, I just wanted to ask a, a couple more questions about exchanges at, at oral argument and some different factors and points that seem to be stressed by by the various justices. So it seemed like both the chief and Justice Corrigan were pretty unimpressed with the the level of morally culpable conduct that one of those factors that relates to the Rowland factors on the part of SoCal Gas of, of having some you know, allegedly knowledge that this blast, this um, this leak could happen and, and, not, and doing not not doing enough to prevent it. Did you get a, the sense that that was weighing heavily on, on their minds? Absolutely. And it relates to the question of whether Southern California Gas has a duty of care. One of the criteria is whether or not the negligent actor uh, engaged in morally blameworthy conduct. And what happened in this case is about as morally blameworthy as a negligence case ever gets. Um, Southern California Gas actually removed the safety valve from this aging well in 1976 and then lied about that fact to federal regulators for decades. They also prioritized profits over safety by pushing more gas through the corroding tubing for this injection well than the tubing was designed to handle. And as a result of this gross negligence, the well blew out And making matters even worse, Southern California Gas had no kind of emergency response plan. So when the well finally blew out, it took eight separate kill attempts for them to finally stop this leak. And that's why the damages were so extreme from this blowout. And what the Chief Justice and Justice Corrigan emphasized at oral argument when they were questioning counsel for Southern California Gas was that This leak would never have happened if the company had not taken the safety valve off of its aging well and then lied about that fact for decades. And they said that in response to a argument that was being made by the Council for Southern California Gas that was 
quite shocking to me to hear sitting in that in that hearing room. Southern California Gas said that first that because they paid for the relocation of the residents who live within the five mile zone, they shouldn't be further punished. Ms. Sullivan said, no good deed goes unpunished, and we actually paid for this relocation, and now it's just not fair that we should have to pay for the damages suffered by these businesses. And I had an opportunity to point out in rebuttal that the reason that Southern California Gas paid for the relocation is because the county forced the company to pay for the relocation, because this gas leak was so bad and was causing so much illness and property damage that the county understood that people needed to be evacuated from this area. So in response, it was in response to an argument like that, where Southern California Gas was saying to the court, we are being too punished, we didn't do anything bad here, that the Chief Justice and Justice Corrigan really hammered down hard on Southern California Gas. And there, were, and there was one additional argument along these lines that Council for Southern California Gas made that I think particularly incensed the court. Um, Council for Southern California Gas argued that they should not be punished any further because they had cleaned up all of the environmental harm from this gas leak. And in truth, as I pointed out in my rebuttal, they cleaned up the direct damage to the community, but they can't clean up the methane gas that poured out of this well. This well leak caused an amount of methane gas to escape into the environment that made California exceed its methane, uh, increased California's methane gas emissions by 25%. The amount of gas that leaked into the environment was 220 times the, the total amount of oil that leaked out from the, from the BP oil spill. And there's no putting the genie back into the bottle. This accident had a, a measurable impact on global warming. So the argument from Southern California Gas that not only you know, that it was being punished too much because it had already cleaned up the environmental harm from this is just preposterous. And I think that the Chief Justice and Justice Corrigan recognized that when they came down hard on Southern California Gas's counsel. The Chief was also very skeptical that there exists sufficient deterrence to prevent future situations like this from occurring. Counsel for SoCal Gas mentioned you know, there's plenty of regulations and there's oversight that guards against this sort of thing happening again. But you know, the Chief pretty pointedly said that Maybe there should be more. You know, this is a pretty catastrophically terrible thing that happened, and it looks like perhaps it could have been prevented. You know, what was your thought about that exchange and, and her thought as to whether allowing these sorts of suits would crank up you know, deterrence past where it needs to be? Exactly. The Chief Justice's question went right to the potential deterrent value of holding Southern California gases liable, gas liable for this. And what the chief recognized was that if Southern California Gas knew back in 2015 when this gas leak occurred that it would be held liable for the full extent of its damages, then it would have done something to clean up its act. Southern California Gas's argument that there's no need to, for it to compensate people because it was already being deterred um, is just not factually credible, because if that were true, then it would never have taken the safety valve off of the well. 
So the Chief Justice's question showed that she understood their argument about there's no need for any additional deterrent effect to be simply just disproven by the actual facts of what happened here. And I was also able to point out in further support of the chief is, of the chief's recognition that there is a need for more deterrence here, that the laws and regulations that have been passed to stop this kind of thing from happening in the future, they're not self-executing. So in the wake of this disaster, the California legislature passed laws and the Public Utility Commission have passed regulations designed to stop this kind of thing from happening in the future. But in order for those laws to work, Southern California Gas has to actually obey them. And the best way to make sure that Southern California Gas obeys the laws in the future is if it knows it's going to have to pay for all the damage that it causes. And that's at the core of the deterrence argument here. It's not enough that the legislature has passed the law. It's not enough that the Public Utility Commission has passed regulations. We need to make sure that Southern California Gas obeys these laws and these regulations. And that's where lawsuits like this come in. Not only is this lawsuit crucial in order to pay to compensate all the victims of Southern California Gas's negligence, but just as important, lawsuits like this are important to make sure that accidents like this don't happen in the future. And it's important to note that there are 12 other underground methane gas storage facilities just like the one at Aliso Canyon in the state of California. And all of these facilities were built decades ago. They're all in an aging condition. And for all we know, any one of these could blow just like the Aliso Canyon facility blew. And if the California Supreme Court agrees with us here and holds and allows us to go forward and hold Southern California gas liable for all the damages it causes from this act it caused from this accident, it will be an insurance policy for the state of California and for the people who live in this state and for the environment that catastrophic accidents like this don't happen again in the future. Okay. And ultimately the California Supreme Court, when it's deciding whether or not to recognize a duty of care, the court is making a policy determination. That's what all these Roland factors boil down to. Is it a good idea as a matter of the public policy of the state of California to allow a lawsuit like this to proceed? And when looking at that, the court is deciding what makes sense from a public policy perspective. And our hope is that the court recognizes that from the standpoint of the people of the state of California and from the standpoint of the environment, public policy cries out for full accountability for Southern California gas. Okay. Leslie Bruckner, Senior Attorney with Public Justice. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And with that, our show is complete for May 31st, 2019. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Yen Shang Seng and Leslie Bruckner from Horvitz and Levy and Public Justice, respectively. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that having listened to the show, you are now entitled to one hour of California CLA credit, which you can claim from our website, dailyjournal.com. Just find this show, a link to a short true-false test. So once you've taken titles you to one hour of credit. Also, don't forget to look for us on iTunes and the podcast app and 
most all podcast streaming avenues. Finding us there by a weekly appellate report helps word of the show spread. So do take a look for us there. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.